Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us into the high-stakes world of political power with director John Madden and his new film, Miss Sloan. Starring Jessica Chastain in the title role, the film follows a Washington, D.C. lobbyist as she takes on a gun control case that jeopardizes both her personal and professional life, as her ruthless desire to win at all costs puts her at odds with influential politicians. In addition to Miss Sloan, Mr. Madden's credits include the feature films Shakespeare in Love, the Debt, Proof, and The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, television movies like The Widowmaker and Prime Suspect The Lost Child, the pilot episode of the TV series Masters of Sex, and episodes of the British television series The Return of Sherlock Holmes, After the War, and Inspector Morse. Mr. Madden was nominated for both the DGA's Feature Film Award and the Best Director Oscar for Shakespeare and Love in 1998. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Madden discussed making Miss Sloan with director Jeremy Kagan. Their conversation included Mr. Madden's thoughts on the morality of storytelling and deciding how much information to give the audience, the need to pay close attention to the procedural elements of the film to ensure that it was accurate to the political world of Washington, D.C., and the choice to cast actors with a theater background to make sure they could handle the fast-paced dialogue of the film. The amazing thing I just learned outside is this movie literally got finished two weeks ago. I can't imagine him having a perspective on it at all at this moment, because those of us who know what that would be like, having just finished a movie two weeks ago, that's pretty amazing. But, but there's some, how bizarre is this at this moment, knowing what's happening in two days here, and knowing that this entire issue is in fact one of the major issues that's being confronted in American politics? How bizarre is this for you? Uh, it is bizarre. It bizarre in ways that we hadn't completely anticipated. I mean... I have to just fill in the background of that a little bit. Uh, you know, we shot the movie when we shot the movie, which was in uh, January, no, wait a minute, February, March, April, or beginning of April. Um, we finished the shooting in D.C. at the end of April. And um, uh, when I saw the assembly of the film, you know, two or three weeks later, I, I thought, okay, we better we better see if we can make the movie happened this year because it felt like the, the you know the the substantive issue in the movie which is uh, about gun legislation obviously you've all seen it um it looked like it was going to be a major part of the of the debate in the coming election we didn't want to get behind the politics on that and i felt that we should go fast to sort of get to that place or not uh, uh, understanding or anticipating for a second what would actually become the policy debate uh, 
in this um, extraordinary process that you're all in. And I say we, I would like to say we, it's nothing to do with me, but it's going to affect the rest of the world quite clearly. So I feel I can say that without apologizing too much. Uh, uh, and where we thought it was going to be the gun issue, it's actually become about political process and specifically about women in the political process, which is obviously an absolutely core issue in the film. So uh, without us anticipating that, it's become, you know, bizarrely uh, timely. Um, you know, we nobody, I think, has any idea what the movie is. I don't know if any of you did here. You know, it's we 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 didn't complete in time to go to any of the festivals that you might normally go to with this. Um, uh, and so uh, here we are. I mean, I don't know what to say about that, except that, you know, one of the things I think maybe about the film is that it, you know, it's, it's modus operandi is surprised, just as its central character is, uh, about that. And the film... I certainly felt that when I first came across it is so surprising. It's not what you expect. It doesn't do its job in quite the way you expect, and it certainly doesn't turn out the way you expect. So I don't know that that's necessarily a, a bad thing. But if it sh you know, ends up reflecting this bizarre process that is unfolding and hopefully will come to the right conclusion in two days' time, then you know, I can only say... That's a, that's an interesting thing. I don't know what more to say about it than that, really. There's a theme here. Obviously, we want to talk about process because this is a room filled with directors and directorial team, so we want to know your process. But there's a theme here about corruption of government in the writing of this piece and also, obviously, in your execution. Does it reflect you? The interest in that process reflects me a great deal. I mean, I, I'm very, you know, uh, as a lot of people in my country are, are fascinated by the American political process particularly because it's not something we have or share. Obviously, we share the principles, but not, not the process itself. And it, it's arcaneness, I suppose, from our perspective, particularly in relation, I have to say, to the gun issue, uh, is is tremendously fascinating and baffling uh, to us. Um, and, you know, bafflement uh, entails curiosity, and curiosity is a very useful prompt to, you know, storytelling and, um, and the kind of motives that you might have for making a film. I, I mean, I... Uh, I don't, what I would stress is that the film is not a polemic. It's not intended as a polemic. Uh, you know, among its qualities, I think, and certainly ones that I responded to when I first read the script, which is not quite the form that it now is, but it, in terms of its narrative shape, it is. Um, it's, it's just a very, very, very good story. And perhaps given its subject matter, one of the things that's odd about it is that it floats, floats free of uh, actuality. In other words, there's no card at the end that says, you know, 10 years later, Elizabeth Sloan did X. Or, it, you know, it's, it's a work of imagination about uh, a decidedly unimaginary world. Uh, although there are imaginary elements in it, not least... 
the fact that the bill gets passed um, almost inconceivable, I think, in the current the circumstances were never even got onto the table. So, um, but uh, you know, I think um, it's not intended to send a message, but it is intended to shine a light on, lift the lid on, an aspect or aspects of the political process that um, we don't normally see. And, and it does so in terms of a very contentious policy debate, obviously. In terms of your own research, what did you learn that you didn't know? I mean, the script obviously is a terrific script on its own, but I'm wondering, as you did research into the process of lobbying and the process, yeah. was there stuff that you learned that you didn't know? That you didn't? Oh, plenty, plenty, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I don't, uh, I don't want to say for, for a second that I really had much more than the basic job description to go on of what a lobbyist did and what was involved. Um, I don't want to say that I was massively surprised by that. I mean, it, it, you know, you, you, I suppose you understand it immediately in terms of advocacy and what advocacy involves, but the ways in which they are... Uh, I was surprised to find, for some reason, I imagined that lobbying firms would be essentially positioned on one side or the other of a political argument. Uh, on the contrary, most lobbying firms are bipartisan in nature. They're businesses. And so they offer their wear and their particular skill sets to whatever cause they're supposed to be advocating. And in some senses, that's, you know, a, a, might seem appropriate if you look at it from the legal standpoint that every argument deserves a proper... Uh, you know, statement of what 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 the issues are, and uh, people can then make up their minds. But obviously, it's wide open to uh, misuse, mishandling, uh, and and I suppose corruption at some level. But um, God knows, at this particular moment in time, none of that is going to surprise anybody. Uh, and I, you know, the the film is not out to point specific fingers. It, it, you know, one thing I should say now is I'm amongst people who do the same job that I do. The film is fundamentally a story about a person and a very extraordinary person in a very unusual field that perhaps we don't have much insight into. And, um, you know, that, it, it, that is the film, in my view. And it's, it's uh, my job and the way we develop the script and so forth was to make that as compelling and as layered and as nuanced as we possibly could, given that it's dealing with some quite explosive ideas, you know, in the political realm. And um, and the film, as far as I'm concerned, rises or falls on the degree to which an audience becomes involved in that journey, because that's what films are to me. It is obviously her journey, but there's there's an interesting thing about how you and also your screenwriter lead and and if you will mislead the audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in in your thinking about this because sometimes when we're telling a story, we want the audience to be a little ahead of our characters mm -hmm. so they get concerned about them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we ride along with them and discover at the same time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're way ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And in this case, that seemed to be often true. And you made choices in terms of your storytelling where 
you all knew something that we didn't know. And I'm curious as the evolution of okay. this. Okay, look, I, I, that's a very good question, a very astute question. It's one that I think, in terms of sort of morality of storytelling, uh, is quite interesting because, you know, when are you cheating on your audience withholding information that they might need in order to understand exactly what's going on? And how legitimate is that? Um, you know, I, I looked at that very, very carefully, and Johnny Pereira and the writer and I thought about this a great deal when we were working on it. Um, and I'll give you an example about that. So, you know, if you stand away from the film, I guess you've just seen it. The movie tells you in its first moments exactly what she does and how she operates um, as she's sort of rehearsing a in enormous sort of lobotomized state, I suppose, her MO. And if she, there's uh, an interesting choice here about if, if she'd said that totally on top of, you know, what she was saying and the way she was saying, and in fact, the way we see her functioning in the early part of the movie, that would tell you, okay, this woman's in total control of what she's doing. Just wait for it. You know, this trap's going to spring. But actually, at the moment that that is happening, she is virtually in kind of existential breakdown, you know, at, at the bottom of a, a curve about who she is, what her life amounts to. In one sense, you could frame the entire film as a kind of kamikaze mission because she's on the edge of burnout at the very beginning. And though she has gamed the idea of the uh, the, the strategy to the end, at least with a detonating option, which she has to invoke finally, she has no idea what she's going to feel on the way to that place. And the film resides, to me, in what happens to her emotionally as she goes through that, specifically the price of the collateral damage she's creating, the, the way that impacts on her in terms of the character that Gugu plays. Um, and, and so, so to answer your question, it shows you uh, nothing is untruthful in terms of the way she is playing it. There's one thing that's untruthful, acted very well by both participants, which is the moment when, when uh, a Jane betrays her, refuses to go with her. That, of course... <laughs> Massive spoiler, but uh, you know you can't talk about that to anybody. It's not, it's not but you know that is their job. Their job is to act out very specific roles in very specific circumstances. I felt all of that was legitimate and part of the enjoyment of the way the story is told. Can you talk about how you, the, the, you worked with uh, Ms. Chastain in terms of, I know that sometimes you're not a fan, we've talked about this, of rehearsal, yeah. but you are a fan of the transformation that an actor can go through as they discover a character. Yeah. What kind of work did the two of you do, either in prep or even during, so that she could well, go through her emotional yes, evolution? Uh, I should stress, it's not that I'm not a fan of rehearsal. I'm a fan of rehearsal, uh, absolutely, uh, because my... My background originally is in theater, as you know. So I'm totally in favor of that process. But in movies uh, and in film work, I think it's a very different uh, thing you need to do. You need to get the actor to the, to the point where they are primed in terms of all the things they need to know and all the choices to tell a very specific story, which is the story of the scene that you're shooting. Um, 
And uh, that's about understanding exactly what the story is doing. So uh, this it's, it's, it's analogous to the process on stage. We don't need to go into all of that. But in, on stage, essentially, you're deconstructing a story for the actor so that they can reconstruct it and act instinctively within a given moment, repeatedly. You only need to act instinctively once in a film. Or you can do it repeatedly, and then you come up with something different. But it's, it's capturing that instinctive moment. So that means you need to, in Jessica's case, uh, I sent the script to her immediately I'd finished it. I had her in mind for it on page 10 or even earlier because we, she and I had been trading material since we did this film called The Debt together, which was a film she made when she was completely unknown, even though it came out uh, after some of the films that now have made her well-known, but that's because of a studio issue and Miramax being closed down by Disney. But um, So she and I had that, and we... Jessica is uh, has a very interesting working method. She just stood back while, because uh, I sent her the script as I have first saw it, and she stood back during the six months that uh, Jonathan Pereira and I then worked on the script ourselves, and you know evolved it as you need to do in these things. Um, no disrespect to the script it was already a fantastic script when I first read it, but um, and then she reengaged with it. Uh, we then talked about it a great deal. I then launched her off. She launched herself off. She's famous uh, for research and so forth. And she went to Washington and uh, hung out on her own agenda with a bunch of female lobbyists, even though we pointed her at the lobbyists that we were working with ourselves as a first base. But she quite correctly wanted to spend time with her own kind, and that was very interesting. And then she came back with a set of questions. Um, it was the next part of the process. I mean, she's a very, very smart girl. So, not girl, woman. She's a very smart actress. Um, and, uh, what were some of the questions? Well, um, so she went and forensically kind of interrogated every aspect of the story. Is it possible that a lobbyist could raise 15 million from 5 million donors in less than a quarter? Answer, just. <laughs> which I was very thrilled about. Um, there was another aspect of the script, which had been an idea that I came up with when we were working on it, that uh, because she has such cranky, weird kind of personal habits, you know, eats in a Chinese restaurant every night, uh, she couldn't care less whether it's the same thing night after night. Actually, that was an idea that I came up with. But anyway, another one was that she traveled by bus because I thought that I wanted the idea of some sort of strange environment for her to be in. And when the the production department started to ask questions of me, like, what is she wearing on this journey? Is she wearing the costume that she'd be wearing when she got to the fundraiser? And I would think, um, hang on, I'll come back to you on that. I began to realize this was a nutty idea, uh, but useful to get to get us to where we wanted to go. And Jessica came back and said, the only question I can't get the right answer to is that she travels on a bus. I said, okay, say, say no more. Uh, that's gone. Um, I mean, I'm only sharing this with you because sometimes you have ideas that open other ideas. And, uh, you know, there was a visual impetus behind that idea but it but it gave rise to much more interestingly 
a whole notion about uh, how the, the the Esme shooting and all of that happened. And, and so, interesting enough, then there's dialogue about her transportation. There, you have that dialogue that then was not in the original script. This uh, is something that emerged. No, she had the scene with Mark Strong. You know where uh, he says, "Where's your car?" Right. Uh, and I think she, I think we had her saying, I don't drive. But, in, yeah, so she took a limo or a, right. an Uber but, or whatever, uh, rather than a bus. What I'm interested in is the evolution of something like this. It Knowing is. That, it, that yeah. things change, these are new lines that are going to be added either during production or... Uh, we, we certainly, yes. I mean, th this script went on evolving right up to and indeed into production simply because it's it's very you know the 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 stuff is very detailed the procedural elements i was really uh, um wanted them to be absolutely rock solid uh the stuff that she is tripped up on in the congressional hearing was something we had wrong in the script originally i mean i won't bother to go into the abstruseness of it but it was all based in on the original script on the fact that the congressional gift ban didn't apply to sovereign states. And uh, we discovered very, very close to the start of shooting that the congressional gift ban did apply to sovereign states. <laughs> so that was like an unthreading, an entire kind of plot strand, uh, which took a long time to work out with our consultants. I mean, this is all normal stuff, but it, it, it's interesting. I want to jump to your cast. Yeah. Um, the support group, particularly her support group, they're wonderful. Some of them, some of us have seen before. Some of them are, are new for us. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about putting them together and where, where these challenges, where they're casting challenges for you? I'm not talking for your major leads, but I'm talking for these other characters. No, no, no. I mean, the paradox of the film is that all, it's called Miss Sloan. Uh, you know, uh, in my view, you know, it's a spectacular performance at the center of it. But the but the odd thing about the film is it's actually an ensemble piece, and the casting of all of the you know the the organism around her and the teams and the way they work and the uh, the the opposition of those groups uh, is really what allows the film to work. And um, I did make some very particular choices. One was to cast the movie out of New York pri primarily. I shouldn't be saying that in a <laughs> in this particular city, but I I think I felt that uh the movie needed people who were uh, could handle language at speed and rhythm. Um, and not that people here can't. I'm just meaning that... That's right. We're slower. It's okay. Uh, no, it's like you pick up the New York Times and you look at the arts and leisure section. Everything you read is about theater. You pick up the arts and leisure sh section of the LA Times. Everything's about movies. And I thought maybe that's a place to go because there's a huge rump of people out there who are working on stage all the time. And I just felt that might be an interesting thing. Did you put them together to get them? I mean, as you were, uh, as you, I mean, was this each one cast individually, or did you start? No, I, they. I cast them individually, by and large, and uh, both from New York and from uh, Toronto, because we shot the film in Toronto, and um, Toronto has a huge acting base now, much bigger as the the. You know, productions expanded up there, and there's a lot of television. Were there challenges? Uh, for, were, were some roles? Did you find this one's really a tougher one to fill than I thought it would be? Um, 
I think, you know, I'm a great believer in auditioning. And, and aside from... And how do you audition? If I were auditioning before you right now as a... Uh, interviewer what would you what would you put me through well initially <laughs> um uh, you know initially with this i would work with the script um you know it, there's a, ov an obvious task an obvious threshold you have to get over with this material it's got a you know an unfashionable number of words uh you know given what what movies uh, you know movie law would have us think and um I needed to know that people could handle that. Uh, you know, I, the same was true with long time ago with Shakespeare in Love. I thought, you know, I just have to know that the language is not going to trip people I mean, up. How here. long was the script? Because it, 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 you, if you said the script was over 150 pages, I would say, I'm not surprised. Because no, no, it, it wasn't over 100. <laughs> I mean, perhaps it was when I first read it. Um, I think it's about. 118, something like that. But uh, but equally, I, I knew, you know, quite obviously it was going to move like a bat out of hell. I mean, it needed to because that's the speed she moves at. But uh, so to, just to finish off your question, I mean, I read very widely and, um, you know, very productively for all of those parts. I mean, it's uh, we should just take a moment here just to say, you know, this is a pretty remarkable script, uh, considering that this is a first-time writer and this is his debut script. I think he has a couple of sort of Nolan-esque pieces in his bottom drawer that he's never shown to anybody. But, um, uh, you know, his feel for dialogue, his um, the, 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 the individuality, actually, that comes out in even the tiniest parts is very very noticeable and that's because he knows that world you know he 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 spent two years in uh you know high-powered international law firm in the uk after he graduated and it was only two years because he stayed there long enough to pay off his college debt and then headed off to uh the far east in order to work in a elementary school in south korea while he figured out how to write um films Basically, what happened? It's quite amazing in his own right. In those scenes, when you had those groups together, did you have read-throughs beforehand? Yeah, because uh, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. so tight. No, 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 absolutely. We we had a rehearsal period, and they had a kind of lobbying boot camp. I mean, you need to get on top of the kind of structures, the the the, uh, the way they think, what their day would be like, how they would go about things um a lot of that stuff is incorporated into the movie but um yeah there we did a lot of work you know on the page as it were um and there was an enormous amount of you won't be surprised to hear choreography to do at, at the time because what you dread with this kind of material is you're just going to bang 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 and it won't have any life to it, and the 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 film required momentum. I mean, that was my first instinct about it was that it, we have to be able to lean into the wind all the way through the piece, and that meant uh, keeping a sense of movement all the time. It's interesting because initially, because there's there's jump cuts and editorial. 
pacing that you have within the first five minutes that shifts as the movie goes on. Yeah. Right? At first, you literally are jump cutting and you are intercutting. Yeah. And it has this incredible dynamism. Yeah. And so we're really moving forward, as yeah. you just said. I like that idea, leaning against wind. But then it becomes not more conventional, but you find another style of filmmaking, much floating camera, dealing yeah. with, for example, those kind of stages. Yeah. What's your thinking process? Well, the, uh, the editorial language which is a you know recurring feature of the film which jumps forwards and backwards so you you enter a scene before you've left the uh, the other one and you're cross-cutting between those two in that time frame was an idea that you know I installed in the script at a very early stage with the writer because it felt um, uh, consonant with the ideas in the film which is you know, it's about strategy. It's about gaming your way forward into a situation and having strategies for sidestepping, you know, and so forth. I don't want to make that over literal, but it felt like that was an interesting way to tell the story. Um, you know, I, I think with any ideas you have uh, about these things, you're just talking about ideas of the way to tell a story. And I think there's no room for dogmatism and there's no room for. We said we'd do it this way. This is the way we're going to do it and apply it ruthlessly. You just go with what, or I do anyway, what... It's about rhythm to me. The filmmaking is about rhythm, and this film is particularly about that. Um, it's, it's a sort of argument between movement and fluidity and then complete silence and stasis, uh, which usually, in her world, denotes the void opening up underneath her, really. Um, but um, so I, you know, that idea comes back again at the end of the film and so forth. Um, and I suppose it involves the idea is, or maybe the effect of it is, I don't know, is the the audience is or the viewer is left filling in those gaps. And one of the pleasures of the film, you know, it's one of those things that is really strange to me that. The experience of having the rug pulled out from underneath you in life is unpleasant and to be avoided. The experience of having the rug pulled out from underneath you in a movie is delicious. And uh, and uh, I, there's nothing I enjoy more in a film than that. And And part of the process of approaching the film is how to maintain that while being honest. But, but uh, you know, it's the idea of as, as John Lithgow's character puts it, connecting the dots is one of the pleasures of, uh, of the way the story works. Very specific thing because of what you just said, no dogma in terms of style, what works is going to work for that scene. There are a number of times, I think you do this twice, and this is a very technical question, but I want to ask it anyway. Mm -hmm. There's a moment when you actually do a couple scenes where you do what we would call jump the line in terms of screen direction. Yes. And it seems purposeful. Yes. And I want to know where your head is a creative director is that says okay I know I should be over the left shoulder and right shoulder but I'm not going to do that they're going to both look left you know I, I, I feel there's two answers to that one is I think that language is gone now I mean I just don't I think a modern audience particularly a younger audience that is used to storytelling that comes in a completely different form than the old rule book would have it uh, it doesn't matter anymore it's not like the, the sharp intake of breath that somehow some rule has been broken and the film is lost um i don't think applies anymore but that said there are moments when 
um, where, you know, a very, very, you get a very particular effect out of doing that simply because of its disorienting factor. So one of the places I'm sure you're talking about is when uh, Mark Strong's character finally, uh, a line has been crossed. It's a, it's after he declares her to be a, a piece of work and and he says, I'm not your fucking opponent. And because the whole movie is changing around at that moment, because suddenly she is presented with this version of herself that she can't defend or answer for. Um, I was working with two angles throughout that and with glass and no glass and so forth. And it felt uh, properly disorienting and it sort of emphasized the moment. So that is deliberate to a degree, but there are other places in the film where I'm just doing that because I don't see why in this particular situation where everything's moving very fast and you're trying to readjust your sense of what the uh, film is telling you and what, what the uh, where the lines are leading and so forth, it felt like it was a natural uh, language to adopt. And so the, the uh, Sebastian Benkoff, the, the cameraman, and I were working with those ideas. And sometimes we would, I just see a shot and I go, wow, that shot is just expressive in a way that the more legitimate one, quote unquote, isn't. And why not? I, I, I think audiences keep up with you now on that. Easily, I think do as well. Production design. Since you were not in D.C., I guess, well, a couple exteriors you, you were. No, we were in D.C. for about two days at it. the very end of the process, yeah. The, but in terms of what needed to be built and what was found? Well, you know, we made it on a very tight budget, um, extremely tight, uh, given the size of the film and the size of the cast. And I had to grovel with every actor and <laughs> say, you know, I hate to ask you this, but you're not going to get paid anything. But, uh, you know, the great advantage was that every part, even the smallest one, was a kind of a gift in a certain way just because uh, actors just l know lines that they want to get their mouths around. And, you know, and it was a very compelling story, and I think everybody felt the same way when they read the script first. Um, but it meant that we did not have the luxury of making sets for ourselves it was a weird circumstance. It was financed by a European um, uh, studio, Luc Besson's studio, uh, Eurofocorp. So it meant that because of French tax breaks and the way that some of the financing worked, we were not allowed to build or work on any studio space in Toronto where we filmed it. That had to be in France. <laughs> so that was out of the question. So it meant that we were very, very location dependent. So we started to construct the physical look of the film in terms of what very forensically looking through every location possibility we could. Um, had an absolutely terrific designer who was, uh, you know, had a really amazing grasp of the secondary level of uh, narrative in the film, which is the whole media world, the studios, what was going to appear on screens and all that sort of stuff. But he was brilliant at deploying very meager resources so did, to, to create... The, the, the two um, lobbyists built... You know, um, well, so the lobbying, the Cole Kravitz and Waterman, there was a... Uh, I love being able to talk about this with you people. I, don't, <laughs> I can't talk about it with anybody else. Um, 
So that we had that the main concourse that you see her and Jane walking through at the beginning was the location. It's actually in spotlight as well, but not the outside of it. Just the um, uh, I think they show up all the time because um, uh, just the conference room. But that gave me a whole kind of world of you know expensive, very very well upholstered, high end blue chip uh, lobbying firm. And this uh, exists. This, this yeah, that exists. It's a it's a property company, and you know, on the seventeenth floor of a building in downtown Toronto, which we could only have access to from five thirty p.m. on a Friday night to seven a.m. on a Monday morning. So we shot all the way through that weekend to get all that material, which involved that the conference room, the sort of interstitial space between, and uh, Sam Waterston's office, which we had to create out of a completely different space. The We lucked out because I found this place. I kept going past it in a car saying, what is that? What is that place? It actually was a office modular furniture showroom, a company called Hayworth, who provide office furniture. And it was their showroom, and it was uh, it had glass windows onto the street, which allowed me then to bring the world outside into the texture of the place. And we had to work very hard to get them to allow us to come in. I wasn't allowed to move. It's all modular furniture, but they didn't want me to move anything. So, for example, the the um, the, the the conference table in the main glass strategy room where they are a lot of the time, I could not move that table. So the whole blocking and choreography was all about where I could get this brilliant uh, second camera uh, Steadicam guy, uh, Sean Seeley, into so that yeah, so that we could actually. But you know, I I really think that is what filmmaking is about. You find your creative solutions in terms of the restrictions that you're you're presented with, and that somehow feeds into the story if you can get that to work right. Who were all the photographs of all the senators and, and congresspeople? Uh, well, that was quite a number. You know, we had to get clearance on all of those people. Clearance on every name that was one of the main problems in the rewrites is that we couldn't get clearances on anybody because obviously we couldn't mention a senator if there was a senator and so on and so forth rodolfo schmidt is is credited in the end as rodolfo vittorio schmidt at his full name because there was a rudolf schmidt in california maybe he's in the audience actually um you know that kind of thing. It was uh, nonsense, but uh, but no, we, we the, there were some very particular all, issues in this film. Someone went and photographed all those people, though, right? Uh, they did. <laughs> they did. Yeah. What were some of the toughest scenes for you to do? Um, I think the congressional hearing was especially difficult because we shot it all in three days uh, in a very small space, and one of the Strange things about, uh, you know, God bless lenses is all I can say. They, it never looks like that on screen. It looks rather kind of impressively large. But every time I went back to it in person, I'd sort of call up the designer and say, wow, is there not somewhere else we could? It felt very right to me, um, though he did brilliant things with it. Um, it's just, It's just a sort of music recital hall as part of the University of Toronto, and it's really quite small. And we could only, University of Toronto is, of course, constantly dealing with uh, filming applications of one sort or another, 
And so they have very strict rules. There were classes going on. We could only have an area about the size of you know, half of this stage, less than that, to work in. So I had to construct all of the shooting if I, you know, I had a crane in there and uh, a technocrane and getting it in and getting it out was such an unbelievable palaver and took an enormous amount of time and I had to ship all the, all the supporting artists out and take them onto buses because there was nowhere for them to be in. And so then everything had to go arse over tit in terms of uh, you know uh, the order of things that I was shooting because I wanted the, I had to get the big shots really together or at the beginning of every day, and we just ended up running out of time. Did you try to shoot as much sequentially as possible, just even I, for her? I did, I did, but obviously when you're working in the situation where you're location dependent, you can't do that. We we did broadly work in in order, but uh, no, I mean Jessica had a humongous kind of task really, just getting the line sufficiently under her belt each day right. um and we uh you know and and that and obviously the whole movie rides or falls on what happens in that congressional hearing so and that's where jessica and the, the you know there's a sort of slightly umbilical cord between us in terms of our ability to communicate in those circumstances because i suddenly realized when we started shooting she had a very different idea about how that last speech was going to work and um what happened uh, she thought that it would play differently. And I said, no, no, this is the moment, the first moment in the movie where your heart and your head are working synchronously together. And, and she was worried that she shouldn't be taking so much time with it. And I said, on the contrary, you need to take all the time in the world on it. Um, but, you know, she's totally trusting and uh and so you know we we got to where and i said like if you want to have now a version of the, of the scene the way you want to do it let's go ahead and do that and she got two lines into it and said you know what i'm not going to do this now Great. Anyway. since you just finished this will be my last question though i'm interested in the editing process is there anything that didn't make it into the movie? Are there scenes that didn't make it into, the movie, into what we there saw? There are a couple of very insignificant ones uh, and one significant one. Um, we had a slightly different idea about the way the movie ended. Um, I hasten to add, this is a very, very rare film here in that the studio was had no interfering presence at all in the film. I've never been left alone on a project in the way that I was on this one. Um, and, uh, you know, they just let me get on with it. But uh, it's too boring to go into and uh, not really relevant. But it, it had to do with, you know, often the last thing, we all know this, when you're editing, the, la the things that take the longest to get right are the very beginning of the film always. You're trying to put your feet, and also the hardest things to shoot at the beginning because you're trying to, somehow get the whole movie in the first thing that you shoot, which of course you can't do. And editorially, the last thing that you get right is where the movie finally lands. And when I watched the film, I found myself thinking, this woman is alone throughout the entire movie, uh, even though she's surrounded by people the entire time. Her experience is 
is a, a you know a completely soul experience and i began to feel that the m- movie needed to end up with her alone completely um that's all i'll say uh, not that uh, no, there's no great secret about it she, there was just i started to hint at what the next stage of her life might be which had made not to do with who that was with but just to um because she wouldn't be with anybody although there're probably about five or six candidates you could think of in the film but i felt that utterly reductive and there was some suggestion should there be somebody in her life and i said well what who uh that's not who she is and the movie leaves her at a point of fragility and but sort of strength i suppose in a certain way but also very much fragility about she's on the verge of some other life some reboot some something which uh, i'd like the audience to take that away and ponder that well you've given us something really good to take away and thank you for the work you constantly do it's really fabulous filmmaking thanks thank you John. thank you Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org/podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. <laughs>